everyone. My name is Tanisha Taylor, and I'm the co-chair of the Affinity Bar section of the BBA's Diversity Steering Committee. On behalf of the BBA and all the co-sponsors of this event, I would like to welcome you back to our Unheard Voices series. Our co-sponsors for the evening are the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation, the Massachusetts Access to Justice Commission, the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, and the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court on Lawyer Wellbeing. This is part two of our Unheard Voices series. Let's just call it a special edition. And we are amplifying the voices of Black women. First, I would like to say a huge thank you to the BBA for making space for Black and Brown people to take and hold space as we create community and speak from our experiences. Before we begin, I wanna be very clear that when we say Black woman or the Black female perspective, we are expressively including all people who identify as female or as woman, including trans, non-binary, and other gender non-conforming individuals. I also wanna be clear that from my experience, Black women are not satisfied with the outcome of Breonna Taylor's case. Breonna Taylor was murdered in her home while she slept by Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Hankinson, and Miles Cosgrove of the Louisville Metro Police Department. We are waiting for justice to be served by Atiana Jefferson, who's murder, justice to be served by Atiana Jefferson, who was murdered by former Fort Worth police officer Aaron Dean while she babysat her nephew in her home. And we are still furious about the mysterious death of Black activist Sandra Bland while in police custody following a minor traffic stop. We dedicate this panel to Brianna Taylor, Atiana Jefferson, Sandra Bland, and all the Black women whose lives have been stolen from this earth. We dedicate this panel to all the Black women whose shoulders I stand on, Sojourner Truth, Fannie Lou Hamer, Hammer, and we also dedicate this panel to all my sisters among us tonight whose voices have been silenced, whose experiences have been denied, potential ignored, and despite it all, we still have hope and we still have joy. We see you, we love you, and this one is for you. Thank you. Now to the main attraction. I will begin by quickly introducing our panelists, which is very hard when you're sitting among people who are so accomplished, but I'll try to be quick. And then I'll introduce our moderator for the evening and then turn the program over to her. So I'm gonna begin by introducing Sonia Spears. Sonia M. Spears is a retired judge and currently the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program. Before embarking on her current role, Sonia practiced law in New Orleans and was one of the first elected Black judges in, at the New Orleans Trial Court, where she served for 12 years. Sonia teaches at her alma mater, Tufts University, and with the Trial Advocacy Workshop at Harvard Law School. Sonia also serves on the National Advisory Board for the Vital Village Network and the Executive Council for the AARP Massachusetts Chapter and is the proud mother of two young men. Welcome, Sonia. Thanks. Danielle. Danielle Johnson is a staff interning in the Housing Unit of Greater Boston Legal Services where she focuses on eviction defense for, ten for tenants and tackles systemic problems related to housing instability. Prior to joining the housing unit at GBLS, Danielle worked in the Elder Health and Disability Unit, helping elders stay in their homes. 
Danielle is currently a board member of the Massachusetts Black Women Attorneys, a board member of Hearth, an organization dedicated to end homelessness amongst the elderly, and is published in the Boston Bar Journal and the Boston Globe, where she discusses the need for diversity in the legal community. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. You're welcome. Jennifer Carillon is a member of Morgan Lewis U.S. Lawyer Recruiting Team, where she is responsible for the overall planning, management, and administration of diverse law student and lateral non-partner lawyer recruiting, integration, and development. Jennifer also helps develop and implement innovative diversity and inclusion outreach programs at her firm. And she's a member of Morgan Lewis's Diversity and Inclusion Committee and Deputy Region One President of the Hispanic National Bar Association. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. You're welcome. Dean Angela Anwachi Willig is a graduate of Grinnell College, the University of Michigan Law School, and Yale University. She's the Dean and Professor of Law at Boston University School of Law. Previously, she served as Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Berkeley. She is the author of numerous articles and leading law journals and is the recipient of numerous teaching awards and is also a former Iowa Supreme Court finalist. Most recently, she was honored as an extraordinary woman in Boston in spring 2020. Additionally, she and four black women colleagues were selected to be the inaugural recipients of the Association of American Law Schools Impact Award in recognition of the extraordinary work they performed in collating the Law Dean's Anti-Racist Clearinghouse Project. Welcome. And finally, I'm gonna turn it over to April English. April English started her career with the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office in 2003, first as an Assistant Attorney General in the Consumer Protection Division, and then in the Insurance and Unemployment Fraud Division of the Criminal Borough, where she served as Deputy Division Chief and Director. In 2016, mm -hmm. Attorney English was appointed to a diversity role, now titled the Chief of Organization Development and Inclusion. In this current role, Attorney English oversees the workplace composition and culture across the AG's office and manages the administration of the office through a racial justice and equity lens. Prior to these roles, Attorney English served as a Superior Court Law Clerk. She currently serves on, the, on several boards, including the Massachusetts Legal Assistance Corporation, the Board of Bar Overseers, YW Boston, and Bunker Hill Community College Criminal Justice Advisory Board. Before I turn it over to her, I, I want to say one thing about a couple things about April. When we were doing the planning for this, she introduced herself as she is from my Lord and Savior. Is that what you said, April? My mother and Spelman College. And let me tell you, when you hear a black woman introduce themselves and tell you that they're from their Lord and Savior, their mama, and a, a historically black college, you know they're about to bring the boom. So without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, my sister, my friend, my mentor, April English. Thank you so much, Tanisha. <laughs> um, thank you. I mean, thank you for the entire introduction that I'm sure uh, for me and the panelists, we were not ready for that one. But we thank you um, for making sure that this panel goes in the right direction. And so we appreciate your introductions. Um, thank you to the BBA and all the co-sponsors for organizing this panel series of Amplifying Unheard Voices. Good evening, everyone. 
Again, I am April English. I am an Assistant Attorney General and I serve as Chief of Organization Development and Inclusion. I am overjoyed to be your moderator this evening for our panel on Amplifying Unheard Voices, the Black Female Perspective, All Inclusive. I wanna start off with a definition of Black woman. Female human being of African descent, subject of extreme abuse and oppression based upon the inaccurate or racist perception of inferiority by the oppressor. Scientifically, the mother of civilization, one from whom all life comes forth, one who subscribes and practices thoughts and deeds which promote unity among people of color, synonymous with mother, sister, leader, teacher, warrior, and wife. And some adjectives to describe us, strong, intelligent, beautiful, compassionate, and tireless. I am a black woman and I speak from my perspective and lived experiences of being a black woman. For me, I am a black person first. Nonetheless, my lens is from the view of intersectionality as a black woman. I was raised by a black woman. I attended an HBCU that is majority, if not all black women. I love being a black woman and I am unapologetically her. If that makes you uncomfortable, then get comfortable being uncomfortable because I deserve to be my genuine, authentic self without you underestimating me or being afraid of me or dehumanizing me by labeling me a monster or angry, especially when I have 400 plus years of reasons to be angry or as James Baldwin states, in unadulterated rage. Don't dismiss me or abuse me simply because you don't know what it's like to be me. A black woman in this world, in this country, where I experience racism and sexism at the same time. Let me repeat that. We experience racism and sexism at the same time. I deserve for my black womanness to be in every room at every table in leadership and ownership. I too should be able to be assertive and passionate without being labeled aggressive. In the words of Bell Hooks, ain't I a woman? I am a black woman phenomenally. And with that, let's hear from our other strong, intelligent, beautiful, compassionate, and tireless black women panelists. Good evening, sisters. Good evening. Good evening. We will jump right in with our questions and start this thing off. Nine out of 10 black women are critiqued negatively at work for non-performance based things like attitude, not being a cultural fit, not meshing with the team, even when our work is impeccable. Sonia, have you ever felt the need to change your demeanor? when working with colleagues or community members who are not Black? 
So good evening again to everybody and thanks. It is an honor and pleasure uh, to be here this evening with you. So yeah, just to go right into the question, April, I, I think that I can't say that I've changed my demeanor necessarily, but I think that if we're thinking, this question reminds me of code switching, where you when mm -hmm. you come into a certain circumstance and you're listening and trying to figure out where it is, if you're not, you know, if you don't know the people or, um, you know, if you're not necessarily among sisters, um, you know, you have to, you have to learn um, about who you're in the space with and then how to communicate with them. And I think this is something that as Black women, as Black people, we have had to do ever since, you know, we were young. You know, as Black people, we have to learn about white folks. We have to learn about, um, you know, other folks who are considered in the so-called dominant culture. Um, you know, but, and so we have to learn to navigate those spaces in a way that white folks don't have to. So I think that definitely, you know, learning to pay attention and navigate and being a little bit more, you know, I don't say cautious, but, you know, listen carefully to learn first about how you communicate is something that I, I definitely can say that I've had to do, um, but still trying to maintain, you know, who I am. So the demeanor part of it kind of um, speaks to the part that, you know, I still won't let go of who I am in those spaces, even though I have to learn how to, how, how to navigate them. What about you, Danielle? Can you tell us about your experiences? Sure. And I echo everything you said, April. Every time I see you in a space like this, it's very exciting. You're such an eccentric person. So thank you thank <laughs> for you. The, that great introduction. Uh, and I want to echo exactly what um, Sonia was saying as well. I think this question also ties into the way we look and the way we present ourselves to the outside world. Um, I remember in law school when I first started, I had, I still have locks and I, you know, was contemplating, you know, maybe I should change the way my hair looks because, you know, natural doesn't fit well with, you know, a lawyer, I guess, and it looks a little weird and it's too ethnic. So when I think of, you know, trying to change your demeanor, that's one thing that comes to mind is, you know, how do I look to the outside world? Is this too black? Am I too, you know, I don't want to scare people away. And I don't want to think people that make people think that, oh, here she comes, one of those, you know, all black, I'm proud to be black types, and we don't want her around. Um, and that's something that I battled with. And then as I, you know, matriculated, it was, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm proud to be <laughs> who I am. This is my natural look. And it's great. And I wouldn't change it for anything. So um, in that regard, I did have a battle with that very briefly. And I'm glad it was brief, uh, because, you know, I wouldn't trade natural hair for anything. So uh, I think in that regard, um, I have had to take a look back and see, you know, what's what does society think of me? Um, at the same time, be proud and, you know, stand up for the fact that, you know, I'm black and I'm proud. You know, I get a lot of questions from students who ask me, should I change my hair? Um, my office is well aware on my stance on the Black woman's hair. Um, and so a lot of students ask me, should I change my hair up? I'm going to have this interview at this firm. Should I, I mean, I know it's in braids. Should I take the braids out? Should I, you know, take the weave out or what have you? 
And my response back is always, if you have to do that, is that where you want to be? Because what else are you going to have to sacrifice right. as part of your genuine, authentic self? What else are you going to have to sacrifice? Mm -hmm. And so I, I just ask students to just think about that. Right. I figured out the screen share and it's going to happen, y'all. And here it goes. So even with what Sonia and Danielle just shared, being Black is not exhausting. It's everything else. Everything else that is exhausting. We are at my office now reading Dr. Kendi's um, young adult version of Stamped. And as I'm reading through it, I'm seeing the similarities to today from 1933 to 2020. And at one point, as he's discussing reconstruction, he discusses how exhausting all of this is. And here we are today, exhausted by all of these items right here that have existed for so long. So with that, with the, with the discussion of, you know, students asking, you know, about the here and, you know, starting off in your career, at the beginning of your career, Jennifer, what tips might you have for Black women at the start of their careers? Yes, thank you, April, and thank you all for having me here to be among this distinguished panel. So other than investing in your 401k, um, for Black women earlier in their careers, I would say be your authentic self. I wish I had the hindsight to, um, or the foresight rather, to really truly feel comfortable bringing my authentic self to work. I feel there were so many missed opportunities for me um, early in my career to educate someone on my culture, my experiences that yes, you can be a black woman in corporate America doing a phenomenal job and still go to a Chris Brown concert on the weekend. Um, I always felt I had to cover my true identity that, you know, English wasn't my first language, that I didn't ski on weekends or that I didn't summer on the Cape or that Nantucket. I summered on Talbot Ave and Codman Square and I always felt that I had to deny people of that and that I had to cover myself in order to feel adequate. And I wish I had known then how valuable those unique experiences were, not only to my career, to my relationships at work. Um, I always felt like in order for me to build relationships, I had to first find common ground. But I found that some of the best relationships that I built were those where we had differences. And I could say to them, actually, I didn't grow up skiing. Um, this is what we did in my neighborhood. It was actually really fun. You should try it sometime. Um, so I found that to be incredibly valuable. Um, some of the best relationships that I have to this day at work is because I shared with someone, hey, I'm going to um, a Marsha Ambrosia's concert this weekend. Oh, you've never heard of her? Let me pull up this music for you. I think you might like her. I found that some of the best relationships that I built is because I allowed my true self to show to that person and they appreciated it so much so much I realized. And then I learned that sharing my story could open the door for others with a similar story. You know, Jennifer's doing well in her job. You know, she, you know, she comes from a single parent home. She English wasn't her first language. Maybe we should be giving other um, people with the same background, the same opportunities. And I wish I had known that early on because I would have been shouting it from the rooftops. And 
to answer the second part of your question on uh, mentoring black women, I don't know if you asked that April, did you? Mentoring black women early in their careers? Can't remember. I, I asked a question about um, what tips you might have for black women at the start of their careers. Okay. I'm gonna shift it over to Angela to bring us to the second part of that question. So Angela, um, if you have any additional tips to share, um, piggybacking off of Jennifer in terms of um, tips for black women at the start of their careers, um, would love for you to share, but also what tips do you have for anyone mentoring black women at the start of their careers? So the mentors, do you have advice and tips for the mentors? Yeah, so I guess I would say, there are a couple of things I would say in terms of, of tips for black women starting out their careers. First is that, you know, is, you know, seek many mentors, you know, so I think a lot of people think you need to have one mentor and or one ma primary mentor, but you have many, many mentors. You might have one mentor for one particular thing and another mentor for another another thing. And so you have many, many different mentors and your mentors don't have to look like you at all, right? Your mentors can be, you know, a white man, they can be black women. I mean, so so there are many, many mentors and they serve many different purposes and, and it's good, it's always fine to have many mentors. Um, the other thing is I would say, which is sort of a, it's a, uh, is that first impressions matter. And I think it matters in particular for, it's sort of a negative, being aware of sort of the ways in which negative stereotypes work is that and there's always more scrutiny uh, on, on black people in general and black women. And so the way that, the, so the first impression, right? What happens with us is either people's stereotype of us is either confirmed or, re or rejected, right? Uh, and that first impression into so the first impression of your work, the first impression of whatever happens um, really matters, right? Because then that sort of either tells the rest of the story or that starts, that's the start of your story or not. And so I think that's really important to keep in mind. Doesn't mean you can't overcome it if it's a negative first impression, but it does matter. Um, and then I would say one thing is to always have outside support, to always lean on your outside support. And so even if you're the only person in your workspace, if you're the only Black woman in your workspace, to always have a network of, of, of women or of Black women or other people that you trust that you can call on who can, you know, confirm, validate that you're, what you're thinking, what you're experiencing, what's going on in your mind about what you're experiencing is absolutely right, sane, all of those things, because um, it's good to have that validation. It's good to have that support on a regular basis. And then one thing I, I didn't understand along the same lines as what Jennifer said is I didn't understand that the views that I bring, the experiences that I had as, as a Black woman, and those views that I have as an outsider are really strengths. So in so many spaces, you know, you in, especially when you're in male-dominated spaces, white male-dominated spaces, you're bringing a view, and it might seem like quite obvious to you, and, and, and you're wondering why, why hasn't anybody mentioned it? Um, and it's because they don't see it. And so it's a strength because you're seeing things and you're able to analyze things that other people aren't able to do. So it's a strength that you bring and to really sort of embrace that that is a strength that you have. And for people who are mentoring young Black women, I think one thing that I would say is... Um, is that they should really be proactive in, um, in, um, in, 
being a sponsor for black women, right? So the difference between a mentor and a sponsor, right? And the, you know, the sponsor is really the person who's behind the scenes, secretly bolstering that person, uh, you know, bragging about them, right? And uh, and I think that you, it really is something that you should do, should almost be over the top in a way, I think, for black women because of all the obstacles that, that um, the black women are facing, right? So every moment that you get to bolster uh, your mentee, you should be taking advantage of that moment to do that um, uh, behind the scenes, right? Um, that's really, really important. So I would say that. And the other thing is, um, is you know, don't ever, don't ever assume that something is common knowledge. Knowledge is really power, and 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 there's so many things. I think given given. Uh, racial background and, and especially with class background, and I think about my own my own class background that you might not know that some people might take for granted, and so you think, oh, I won't, I won't even have to say that, or I don't even have to say that. Uh, and if somebody had said it much earlier, it would have made sense, it would have been helpful, and so there's so many things that you might think that you shouldn't have to say that you should say. And so don't take anything for granted as you're mentoring somebody and try to share every single step uh, along the way as you're helping someone navigate their way through the workplace and through their career and even through life, right? So even something like, you know, start with your 401k earlier. That's advice I wish I, I also would have had earlier. So, mm -hmm. uh, so all those things, that's what I would say. Thank you. You talked about being an outsider um, and bringing your views um, to the table in the rooms or what have you. Danielle, how has uh, your multiple identities, you know, this idea of intersectionality impacted your experiences in predominantly white spaces? Sure. And I, I think Angela touched on a lot of this where being a black woman is, is different and it benefits you uh, in a lot of cases. Um, and from someone who does housing mostly, and unfortunately the housing crisis is a huge issue in Boston, um, and majority of the people that are getting evicted are black and brown people. So you're having to navigate that space as a black woman, as an attorney, and you're seeing individuals that look just like you being evicted from their home, um, and you're seeing these individuals also talking with white male attorneys or white attorneys in general who may not understand the family dynamics, who may not understand why it is that all this parent has to do is kick her son out and she can stay in her house where there's a lot more to it than it's just not her son. There's more information that we don't have. And as a black woman, I understand that, okay, this son is taking care of his mom. He's a form of protection for her because for whatever reason, there may not be a man that's present, or there may be a man that's present and the mom is afraid. There may be different scenarios there. So I understand those dynamics versus a white attorney may not. So in those instances, it helps being a black woman because I can talk and have these conversations with uh, various individuals and understand, look, I understand where you're coming from. You know, This is a situation that's not ideal. Uh, let's see how we can figure this out. Um, and I think also being able to leave the legalese behind is a, is a benefit. And I think Angela touched on this where you can't speak to everyone the same way that you would assume that they understand. So the way I'm speaking now, not to say that individuals that are facing eviction don't understand me as I'm speaking now, but you have to use a certain vernacular. You have to use a certain tone that they may, you know, 
understand a little bit better. So I think in terms of trying to get to a happy medium for both sides, uh, being a black woman has its benefits, but at the same time, it also doesn't have its benefits because, you know, if you have a, a client who, oh, this person's black, you're black too. Why don't you go over there and talk to them? Cause you know, you know how you guys are. So it's like, no, I don't know how you are. What do, what do you mean? Um, so having and pushing back when you see those types of things happening, which has happened to me before um, and saying, you know, I'm not gonna be the token just because I'm black and they're black. You have to learn how to have these conversations. I'm not always gonna be here to, to have, these, have these moments. So um, in terms of intersectionality, you know, it's a, it's a daily battle, I think, because at one side you're talking to other women, on the other side you're talking to black women, on the other side you're talking to white men. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a balancing act um, for sure. And we're going to hit on tokenism um, in just a little bit. So thank you um, for bringing that to the forefront. Jennifer, what about you? How, how do you move in these spaces with your grandiose intersectionality? Yeah. And so I'm actually going to come at this answer from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, I identify as both Black and Latina. Um, and pro you know, prior to joining the corporate workforce, I always found myself code switching between when I was home and when, when I was with my black friends. And so I found that I almost came into code switching very seamlessly um, when I started working. And I had gotten so comfortable operating in this space that I didn't even realize I was doing it and that I was covering. Um, so the way it's impacted me is, um, you know, I've had to be very intentional about be, like I mentioned in my last answer, bringing my authentic self. Sometimes I felt like I was just so used to having the, the two different kind of um, identities that I, I had to be very intentional about breaking that and really stopping that. And as someone who works in the diversity space, I think it's critical to make sure that I'm bringing my, my authentic self. One minute. Um, I think it's critical to make sure that I'm bringing my authentic self, especially in the diversity space. So I've been very intentional about making sure that I don't feel like I have to cover and that I am, you know, really bringing my, my complete self to the office. I think so keeping kind of in that spirit of um, being impacted by being in, you know, predominantly white spaces on a consistent basis. Um, Angela, what do you want your white colleagues and our community partners to understand about your experience? And, and can they do better? How can they do better? Should they do better? Um, well, absolutely, they should do better and they can do better. <laughs> that's uh, that's no, no doubt about it. Um, but I would say that one thing is that they should understand is that I'm constantly operating in a world that that did not um, did not ever consider my existence, right? Um, and and so I'm constantly operating in a world that did not ever consider my existence and assumed that I wasn't going to be in it, basically. And so creating space for myself, right? And so all the assumptions around me. Um, uh, or an assumption that I wasn't going to be there. And so there's so many things that are invisible to them um, that assume my absence and that, that 
um, you're constantly fighting against it, right? Or you're constantly trying to sh re reveal that to them. Um, and so uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that there, there are lots of microaggressions. I think that um, there, there, I think that people think they're, you know, a couple things or one thing, or you say something, uh, when you say something about that one thing, that might be the only thing. No, but they're all day long, right? And, um, and that you would, you would be tired and you couldn't accomplish anything if you were to say something about all the, the many microaggressions that occur throughout a day. That there are many, many microaggressions and that they're exhausting and they wear you out and they're disruptive and they're inefficient and they take away from, you know, your ability to do your work, right? All those things. And that that's an additional burden. And then on top of that, the burdens of some of what other people have been talking about, the performances that you have to engage in, in different moments, right? To, right? So whatever you're encountering and then dealing with it, that it is another job on top of everything else, right? On top of your actual job, there is a job of being black in these white spaces. And so I think that, and that that is work that they don't have to do. They just get to be themselves. And I'm always amazed, right? When people <laughs> say something or they, or, or they'll give advice to someone or they'll do something and I'm like, Man, you just get to do that. And you don't have to think strategically about it. You don't have to think through every single step and think about how you get from point A to point B. I mean, it, on a, it's something that they would consider relatively minor. Um, and so I think that to just think about the work that it takes even to just get through one day I think that's what I'd want them to know, right? To be as being a person in a space that never, where you were never intended to be. That makes sense. I know it makes, I know it makes sense to you all, but. <laughs> that, yes. Yes, that makes um, some serious sense. And it makes me think about um, recently, the mayor of Chicago was asked if she was a, an originalist. Um, and she was very clear, crystal clear, that she was not. And as a matter of fact, she was not even considered anything then. She is a gay Black woman and was not considered just what you said, you know, not considered, wasn't part of that space, wasn't even thought of as a human being, right? Um, and I loved what you said about the job of being black in white spaces. In these questions that we, we've just dealt with, um, it really made me think of the book, The Memo by Minda Hartz, right? She has this book that lays out our experiences as black women, as women of color. And I cannot impress upon everyone more than I'm saying right now, how important everybody who was on this call, how important it is for you to read that book. That book will help you better understand our experiences, especially in the workplace. As Angela spoke about the macroaggressions, the microaggressions, or as Dr. Kendi states, the racist abuse that we go through day in and day out, and it is killing us. It is so harmful. It is so humble and we carry that burden and we bring it home to our families, to our children we are raising, to our parents we are caring for, to our communities that we are trying to uplift. 
we carry this burden with us. And it would be ever so helpful if people could just become more knowledgeable, like you said. And it really does start with talking to people, hearing about people's experiences, believing our experiences, right? And then picking up some books, just crack open a couple of books to better understand. So thank you for that. Now it's gonna get hot, y'all. Because <laughs> we're about to talk about an experience when our voice was silenced. And we had that moment of, I'm speaking. And who shows up for us, if anyone? So let's talk about those experiences and who shows up for us. But before we do, I'd like to read a tweet that was posted by a white woman the night after the vice presidential debate. She states in her tweet, a lot of white women this morning think they're Senator Harris in the situation we saw last night, when actually we're Susan Page, failing to hold white men accountable for their actions and failing to use what little institutional power and privilege we have to level the playing field. Women get interrupted, ignored, and disrespected a lot, and it sucks. But white women can't understand fully what Harris experienced, and we need to be careful not to think we do. We can identify with a portion of her struggle, but we can never fully feel or internalize the totality of it. So that brings me back to the question, my sisters. Tell me about an experience where your voice was silenced and who showed up for you? Let me start with Sonia. Yeah, so th thanks for all of that. I, I, I um, so many things are going through my mind. Uh, you know, the conversations about the exhausting microaggressions, um, some macroaggressions, the whole idea also about white folks taking some time to listen to and believe what our experiences are. And then, taking the time to do some work on their own, not always expecting to be taught everything to be handed to them by black folks. And so I remember one time about when you asked about when our voices were silent, this was when I was just elected to the bench. Mm -hmm. um, and I went to the bench young when, when, when I went and in New Orleans judges are elected. And the judge who was in the seat before me was a white man, and he had been on the bench for about 17 and a half years um, before I unseated him. And he was used to running his courtroom in a, in a certain way. And there was this one white man who was a regular in his court who used to come in to, you know, handle some summary matters. Um, and he was used to walking in and having the whole staff call him up to, you know, sort of skip the line and move in front of everybody else and get his business taken care of so that he could leave. And he came into my courtroom in the same way, I guess, that he was used to doing uh, previously. And when I said to him, excuse me, counsel, um, there's a whole line of people there. You have to wait your turn. We will call you when it's time for you to come up 
to, you know, hear your case. The man walked up to the bench and put his finger in my face and started to say, listen to me. I was too outdone, was pointing his finger in my face in open court while I'm on the bench and telling me off about, uh, clearly he wasn't happy that I had taken the place of the, the white man who was there before I was, but tried to tell me off um, to say, look, this is what I'm used to doing. There's no reason why I can't do it anymore. So I had to speak up for myself at the moment. I had to remember, look, even though you're new, <laughs> I think this happened like within my first week on the bench. And, you know, I had to, t- you know, had to go through all of these, these, um, you know, mental gyrations about, okay, how much do I, you know, go off on this guy? Or, you know, what is this saying? How do I really, you know, plant my stake here as the judge? And then I said, I am the judge in this courtroom. And so I said to him in a, in a very calm voice, excuse me, counsel, you need to first back up because I am the judge in this courtroom and I will not have you speaking to me or behaving that way while you come in here. You might have been used to doing that previously, but I will, you will treat my staff and me with respect when you come in. And so then he had to come down and then he stormed out. But, you know, from from that day forward, though, <laughs> he didn't do it again because we made sure, too, that, okay, no, you are not going to come and push your way through. <laughs> and so my staff, then when they saw him coming for a while, they say, oh, no, 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 you know, we he can handle his business at the end for a while, <laughs> you know, until he learns a little bit about how to respect folks. But that would never, ever have happened in a in the courtroom of a white man judge never it wouldn't have crossed his mind but again the the thinking of you know i'm I'm thinking back to what angela's saying about being in spaces where you were never ever contemplated being in before you know that and it comes as a a shock (laughs) um to folks who are not used to that and have to make the adjustment but they just have to make the adjustment. Yeah. yeah. I have a hard time with my facial expressions. So my facial expressions typically say I'm speaking um, and I get told all the time, fix your face. Um, <laughs> and so, and, and use your words, right? <laughs> um, anybody else want to share? Angela, do you want to share a time where you had to, you had that moment, I'm speaking. Oh gosh, um, you know, maybe faculty meetings. I don't. I, I'm trying to think about um, a particular moment that might be a good story. I don't. I don't not one comes to. Not one that's a, uh, as as memorable as that story. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't. That's unbelievable mm-hmm. in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. I feel like there's ever so many that you're searching your Rolodex right now, trying to trying to figure out, this This is the bizarre thing, you're trying to figure out the best one. <laughs> I have, 
Well, I, you know, I want to share one just because if there's if there are any students listening, I want to share this for for women who are junior faculty. When I my very first year of teaching, I had a um, a young white woman um, speak disrespectfully to me in class, um, um, really disrespectfully in front of the whole, you know, you know sort of. You know, that, but she raised her voice. It was clear that she was being disrespectful, and I treated her, you know, calmly and respectfully back, like as I as I should have, right? Um, or you know, I guess I could have kicked her out of the classroom or something. As that, uh, but I but I I did that. But what what I want to say is, is, which is really important, is even though I did that, one of one of her peers took care of it. So when you said this, the second part, uh, it wasn't a black student, it was a non-black student, saw that and went to her and told, came and told me later, I told her precisely, you know, and took care of it and sat down with her and told her, and I never had problems with, well, I don't know what they said to her, I didn't ask, but, 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 you know, I never had problems with her again, but, it, but one of her peers checked her said this was disrespectful and must have explained everything to her, must have told her it was, you know, whatever, they thought it was racist, whatever it was, I'm assuming. But I, I say that because I think it's also important because I do think that in particular um, young women of color who are who are teaching for the first time sometimes to face it, face those kinds of things in the classroom and in you, and, and I read them when I look at evaluations for professors sometimes. And so I think that that students also can be a check on each other. And I think I wanna share that story because I thought that was really important. And that student didn't know what she did for me, but that was helpful, right? Because she checked her classmate and then her classmate changed her behavior. Jennifer, Danielle, any, any story? that um, you want to share. We also do have a question that ties into one of our other questions. But do you have an I'm speaking story to share? Um, so I, I'm a fairly young attorney. I'll be five years out next year. So I'm still figuring out this legal world. Um, and I've definitely had instances where attorneys can almost sense the youngness on me, I guess. Um, whereas, um, you know, whether it's an email or it's in court, they tend to talk down on me as if I don't understand the law or if uh, I didn't go to law school or because I am four years out, then I must be new to this. So this is prime, you know, time to take advantage of this person. Uh, so I, I definitely have come across one particular particular attorney uh, who uh, was definitely very rude in her emails, uh, just unprofessional to the point where, you know, I felt uncomfortable responding via email because it's in writing and, you know, <laughs> my parents taught me long ago, never put anything rude or bad in writing because it can come back and haunt you. Uh, so whenever she you know, emails me a snarky response or something like that. You know, I try to hold my tongue and, you know, I say what I have to say out loud. And then I type my message to her because, um, you know, those things can definitely come back to haunt you. So that's one story that I have where an attorney just, you know, she 
thought she could speak to me any type of way. And in court, I showed her the other way, other way around. So I think that uh, solved itself. <laughs> so I'm gonna jump into this um, question that we got, um, that we just received. And I really like this question. Um, how do you take up space as a woman of color, most specifically as a black woman, when there are so many like you in the space already? Where do you work? That's my first question. Um, <laughs> do you restrict yourself a bit to lift up the voices of other women of color in the space? Or do you continue to make yourself known? In a competitive field, I'm having a hard time unlearning who to be competitive against. I would actually like to start with tackling this question. Um, kudos to you for number one, working in a field where there are so many of us and so many women of color that you have this question. Um, I do not think that you restrict your voice. I think you continue to make yourself known balancing out lifting up the voices of the other women of color as well and making sure that they are being heard and being seen. I heard on another panel that I was on, someone mentioned a meeting monitor. Um, and it was basically for white people who are in the room where there's not a lot of uh, people of color to make sure that the person of color is being heard as opposed to the person of color saying something that is impeccable and wonderful, great idea, great suggestion, wonderful solution, being dismissed, but yet the white man across the table says the exact same thing and he is uplifted. And so the, the meeting monitor steps in and says, actually, Miss English just said that. And that was wonderful, thank you. And so I feel like the meeting monitor can be part of this for you in this space to make sure that voices are not um, superseding other ones, even though the room may look like what it looks like. And you can still be competitive, right? Because we still have to be competitive in order to continue to grow, right? But there's a difference between being competitive, nasty, ugly, and not lifting up your sister with you. And that is something that we as women, as black women are not going to do. We're going to shape and form our sisterhood in order for us to be successful and those standing with us to be just as successful. And we're gonna take this journey together, lifting one another up, if not holding each other's hands. Anyone else wanna tackle that? I, I just wanna dispel, I think, an assumption that a lot of people have of Black people in general is that we have this crab in a barrel syndrome where, oh, we see someone coming up, so we've got to pull them down. Uh, and I don't think that's the case. I mean, just this panel alone is proof that that's not the case. And as someone that is younger in their career, I have found that the best mentors or the best examples of non-crab in a barrel-ism, I guess, if you want to call it, is just looking at the other attorneys that have done it. And Boston is great in that effect where it's so tight knit and it's such a close community that you name drop and someone says, oh yeah, I know that person. Let me put you in contact with that person. So I think having, t having 
or getting that mindset out of your head that if I see this person moving ahead, that must mean there's not a space for me up there as well, whereas there's space for all of us up here. And that's that's been the problem in society is we think that, oh, one, one Black chick made it, so that must mean that it's, it's it for me. And that's not the case because, as the late Justin Skinberg said, I'm not going to be happy until there are nine women on, on the... Um, in this in the court so i think that's something that we as black women need to think as well is i'm not going to be happy until i see april english up here i'm not going to be happy until i see sonia spears up here i'm not going to be happy until i see angela up here i'm not going to be happy until i see jennifer up here so i think we need to have that same mindset and you know i think you know give them credit white women are a great example of that i mean they are great when it comes to pulling in each other and forming groups. I mean, there was just the uh, last month, I believe, where women got the right to vote. And, you know, all the white women were excited. And I feel like all the black women were like, what are we celebrating? We didn't get the right to vote. Um, so that's that's a, a, another topic for another day. But I think that's something that we need to, to think about is bringing us all up at once. Yeah, that's a whole nother panel, Danielle, a whole panel. Um, I, I want to move from that question because that question also leads us into sort of the opposite of that, which is tokenism, right? Which we brought up earlier. Um, and before we get into the question, for those who don't know what tokenism is, tokenism is the practice of doing something such as hiring a person who belongs to a minority group only to prevent criticism and give the appearance that people are being treated fairly. I will repeat again a little quicker. The practice of doing something such as hiring a person who belongs to a minority group only to, give, only to prevent criticism and give the appearance that people are being treated fairly. Now, we're not gonna delve deep into this question because I have two questions that are burning my paper right now. But from a show of hands on this panel, have any of you felt as if you experienced tokenism? Of course. Okay. And with that, do you think that there is any way or any advice we can give the audience right now to avoid tokenism? I mean, I think the, the 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 easy advice is to have to hire many people so that you don't feel like you're putting people in a position when they're so they're they're, they're the token or the representative in any particular situation, is to hire a really diverse workforce or hire a really diverse group, whatever your group is, and so then you won't put anybody ever in that situation. Um, uh, that's that's the, that's the thing to do, and it's just, it's really simple. Mm -hmm. um, and be committed to it, really be committed to it. Mm -hmm. Danielle? Yeah, I, I echo what Angela was saying, and I think it's important where possible to be on hiring committees or hiring boards, uh, because a lot of hiring practices are based off of nepotism or people that look like you. So if it's a, pan if it's a group of all white men, who are they gonna go for, the white guy or the black woman? Uh, so I think it's important that we change the way organizations and things look because long gone are the days where it was just all white men on a board and they were picking the same white guy. Um, so I, I echo what Angela was saying. 
And I would the I, visual to to build off of what Danielle was. What I was thinking too is because I've been on many hiring committees where I was is that when you're on there is if you're you know you know you're being on there and you're sort of the token is put your tokenism to use right that okay I'm not a, I'm, I'm you're gonna you're gonna there's going to be a price for putting me on. There's going to be a price for making me a token is that we're, you're going to hear about it at every single step of the turn. And we're going to, so you're going to be a, 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 right. And we're going to hire, we're going to, we're going to make offers to people who are going to bring, who would bring diversity to our group, to our organization. Danielle, when you gave us the kind of the picture of an all white male board, you made me think of um, a presentation that I went to by Robin De um, D'Angelo, who was the author of White Fragility. And she showed a photo of um, one of the president's cabinets um, and it was all white men except for one white woman, right? And everyone was, oh, oh, oh my God, horrible. That's terrible, that's horrible, right? And then she showed another photo of a boardroom and it was all white women. Mm. And she said, now tell me why you think a woman of color or a black woman would want to walk into this room. It was so powerful. Yeah, that's it deep. was so powerful. And so as Justice Ginsburg says, nine, we are saying that too, nine. All right, I think that this is an important question. I know we have a question from the audience and yes, audience, we are going to go over. This is how we do. I was already told ahead of time that we could do this. So we are going to end up going over. Um, but I think that this question from our list of questions is extremely important. And then I will get to the question from the audience. So the question is, how do we believe organizations can improve their cultural competence by supporting black women and all black people within their organizations. And by increasing their partnerships with organizations led by and serving black communities. So we're basically saying, how can organizations do better, wait for it, for black people, right? That's what we're asking. Um, so with that, let me start with Sonia. Can you give us one way that you think um, organizations can do better in terms of cultural competency and supporting black women or all black people in, in partnerships with organizations? Yeah, acknowledge and affirm their expertise. Mm. Uh, know that they are competent, that they are there, they can do the job, they will do the job, give them the space and the support that they need to be able to get the job done. And, and, and listen to them and, and validate their life experiences. This has come up so many times in this conversation, but the importance of it, you know, cannot be stressed enough. Yeah, you, and, and, and do, again, going back to the doing some of the individual work also, um, so that you can recognize when you are committing things like microaggressions. Um, you, so it's not just completely over your head. Uh, so then you don't have to wonder why your black professionals are not happy or are ready to leave. Danielle. I, I would say, you know, being black and, and being a woman is a year long thing. It's a, it's, we're forever gonna be black and we're forever gonna be women. Um, so I, 
think that you can't just have one diversity training for, you know, the month of October and say, okay, well, we did our due diligence. So now we're not, you know, implicitly biased anymore. So good luck, everyone. So I think the fight needs to be persistent and people need to feel what Black women feel. This is something that we deal with on a daily basis. It doesn't stop until we get home and we're able to release and even then we might not be able to release because of whatever uh, familial situations we have going on. So I think organizations and companies need to understand that this is a, you know, you need to make this a permanent part of your organization or your company. Like this doesn't take a backseat. This doesn't take a day off. Yes, people have busy schedules, but so do black women, but yet we still maintain and we keep going. So I think that's something important that organizations and companies need to keep in mind. I'm going to jump into a question from one of our panelists, which I think is an, a very important question as well. Um, seems to be from a student. I would love to hear some advice from the panelists for young black women who are currently in law school, where the numbers are still very disproportionate and trying to get through this difficult academic journey while also trying to educate their peers on cultural competency and their implicit biases. I'm gonna jump in and share my story real quick. So although I am from Cambridge, um, although I am the youngest of six, I had a very proud black mother, very proud to be black. And I went off to Spelman College. I came back to law school and had a culture shock because I went from 400 that looked like me to 15 out of 300 that looked like me. And I've shared this story that first day in the large um, room uh, for orientation, I ran up to every single black person that walked through that door and I shook their hand, I introduced myself, I got their name, I made sure they knew me. 14 people I did that. As soon as that door, I jumped out my seat, ran over, hi, how are you? April English, nice to meet you. What's your name? Oh, wonderful, right? And we formed a community. We had Bible study during law school. We went to the clubs during law school, right? We did things together. I had my, my child, my second year of law school, one of my... Um, one of my friends in law school sat with my child in another room, the door next to my classroom so that I could hear the baby hollering and screaming when he needed to be fed, right? And so community, I would say number one, build community, right? Number two, still understand to be your genuine authentic self. What does that mean in law school? That means that April and Danielle are going to have two different viewpoints on an issue regarding black people and that's okay remain black both of us we still remain black the color doesn't disappear we just are not monolithic as a group of people and we have different views okay so be okay with that too and then understand that you don't have to speak on behalf of the black community right when it comes to all the cases <laughs> that there were black people and the professor immediately looks up at you because you're black. You don't have to own that. You don't have to take that on. You don't have to. Um, and lastly, you don't have to during law school, educate 
your classmates on how to do better. You are in law school. Let me tell you what you're in law school to do. Get through law school. That's you're in law school to do. You're in law school to get through law school. You're not in law school to now take on the weight of black, the black community, the viewpoints of all the black cases, and then educate your classmates on how to do better. Now, will you have to speak up for yourself when someone says something that's going to be ignorant or offensive? Absolutely, absolutely. But that's in your comfort zone. You know, I say to people, I'm gonna speak up. You might not speak up, but there will be a time where you won't be able to not speak up, right? And so live in that, but you're in law, you paid money to go to law school, nothing else <laughs> but to get through law school. Anyone else? Can I just add to that on the piece about culture, educating peers on cultural competency while in law school? I second what April said, it is not your job to educate them. If they are truly coming from a good place, there are so many student groups that they are more than welcome to join. If they're truly trying to learn, add to the conversation, invite them to Women of Color Collective, invite them to the BALSA meeting. If they are truly coming from a good place, invite them to all the same student groups that you go to and say, I invite you as an ally to join in this conversation, learn from our experiences and absorb it that way. But it's not my job to identify all the resources for you to help you, you know, when I, like, like April said, I'm already in law school, I have enough going on. But if they are coming from a good place, invite them to those student groups. If, they, if they're genuine, they will take you up on the offer. I, I wanna I wanna echo that too. And I think it's fair for you to go to the Dean uh, or the Associate Dean and say, I really think that the law school has a responsibility to do this work. This is not my work, you know? I, this is this would be extra time that is away from my studies and it's unfair. It puts me at a disadvantage. And this is the work that the law school needs to do to prepare its students for practice, right? For a diverse clientele. The other thing is I wish I would I wish somebody had said this to me when I was in law school um, is that the law is not about I mean you came here because you want to see you want to push for justice and equality but that the law the case you're reading it and the way that people teach it often teach it the way the professors often teach it it's not about justice and so for me I just kept getting hung up on it like they would teach it and it would be I'd be like that's not just well that's not fair you know what I mean it never made sense to me Right, and I think once if I once I once I was able to accept that, then I could just be okay. I'm just learning the doctrine; it's a tool that I'm learning, and then I can learn how to try to change it, or you know, or make arguments that will change it that can make it more just. But the way that it's taught to you now, it's not neutral; it's not objective. It's you know, not, you know, I mean, it's it's written from the perspective of these judges who are all right tend to be white, cisgendered, heterosexual men from a particular class, you know, from a wealthy class back. I mean, so it's, it's, that's the perspective that it comes from. And once I was able to sort of understand that, that shaped everything around me. And so I think a lot of us come to law school thinking, oh, this is about fairness and justice, and it's not. And then once you can understand that, I think it's a, it sounds a little bit depressing to say that, but it's, once you can take that, then it's a, that's the reality. Now I've just got to learn this tool. Does that make sense? I wanted to just piggyback on all of that. And, and I mean, I, I just have to add 
the same thing. You Law school is stressful enough that you don't have to worry about teaching everybody else. Um, but to April's comment about law school being a culture shock, it was that for me. I had my feelings so hurt um, after our first research assignment because when I was in law school, Lexis and Westlaw, so I'm dating myself, Westlaw and Lexis was, was new, right? It was this new software. So we actually had to go to the library to pull books for, re for research. And I remember in our first writing assignment, uh, research and writing, when I went to the library, like the, the day after, like that, that it was assigned, like the very next morning, somebody had gone and removed the volumes from the shelves that everybody would need to use in order to accomplish the assignment. I was blown away. I couldn't believe, um, you know, and then I could understand like this reputation that lawyers get from being cutthroat sometimes. But I, it was, it blew me away that not everybody was going to support one another in this you know, journey and and finding your community that April talked about at the beginning. I mean, that was the thing that sustained me throughout law school um, because everyone there did not necessarily have my best interests at heart. Um, I also was fortunate to find a couple of trusted professors that I could go to and speak with, you know, and get help when I needed it. And, and really, if I wish I had taken advantage of that more. I've always been an introverted person, um, but I wish that I had, you know, put the introversion aside a little bit more to seek out those kind of supports also. Thank you. So we have a question um, from the audience and um, I believe this question um, came at the end of our discussion on tokenism. So going off of the previous question, how do you tackle the imposter syndrome and failing from white peers that you are only in the room because of your diverse background. So I just wanna say a few things on this. Um, and this is a hard one because um, that feeling might not go away, right? Um, and unfortunately the onus is on you to figure out how to deal with that, right? And I say that to say, when we are the first or the only, right? Oh, this is a hard one, it's a hard one. When we are the first or the only, good Lord, the onus on us is for us to not be the last. What does that mean? That means that there then becomes a responsibility, unfortunately, right? Unfortunately there becomes a responsibility where we must bring someone into that room, right? And it may take a while. You may be the only one for a little bit, but that is the onus. And I'll never forget the MBLA gala years ago, Stephanie Lavelle uh, received the um, Trailblazer Award. And this is when it hit me. When she said, as a trailblazer, that means you blaze a trail and you have to make sure that trail includes people that come behind you. And so I think for, for me, that's my response to you because that's a difficult one. 
um, because I feel like there is some responsibility on us to make sure that room doesn't always stay you. But I don't know where that feeling goes, except for again, community and reaching out to others um, and having kind of a village of people that can support you. Anybody else chime in? I can add to that um, as someone who has suffered from imposter syndrome almost for the entirety of my career. Um, a few years into it, I started an accolades folder. And anytime that someone, you know, said I did a good job on a memo or something that I had a, a meeting, a presentation, I put it in this folder. And whenever I felt like someone was um, challenging me or making it seem like I didn't earn my position, I would go to my accolades folder and I would remind myself, I deserve to be here. And here are 10, 20, 30 people who along my career have told me that, have validated that and have shown me that I've earned this spot just as much as anyone else. And it's sad that we even need that and the fact that we even feel that way. But I had to find a way to resolve it within myself. I didn't have to rely on anybody else to validate me. I went to my folder, I reassured myself, I reminded myself that I earned my spot just as anyone else did. And I have found that, I use that to this day. I, I call it, my friends call it the round of applause folder. I call it my accolades folder. Um, and it also quite, comes in quite handy during the evaluation process. I literally type up every single one of those emails and my evaluations every year is two, three pages because I am not gonna let you forget that I did this presentation, the chair of the firm asked me to do this and I type it all out. I would say, you know, there are a, a couple, I mean, I, I mean, I, I would say a couple of things. I, one, one of the things I always say to students is that, number one, the admissions committee makes no mistakes, right? Everybody is admitted. There are no mistakes. There's a lot of work that goes into it. So there are no mistakes. You are there because absolutely you deserve to be there and, and you have earned it. So the number one, that's the number one thing to, to remember. The thing is that, you know, sometimes just pause and 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 look around and listen <laughs> or watch um, your other classmates and re I mean, really watch them and you'll be like, what? Okay, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, sometimes, right? <laughs> and, and you're like, I know I'm smarter than that guy. I'm 10 times smarter, I mean, I mean just, I mean, really do because you're so, sometimes you're so focused on feeling like an imposter that you don't really, stop and look around and listen. And, and I think just taking those moments, if you give yourself five, five, you know, 10 minutes to do that, I think you stop feeling like an imposter. I, I don't know how, just, that sounds really bad to say, but I think it's kind of true. I love that. <laughs> and I think, I think it also helps for, and I think April mentioned this as having a community of people telling you that you're doing a great job or just being supportive because in this environment that we are, this lawyer realm, it's so tense that people forget niceties. So it's okay to tell someone, you know, you did a really nice job on that memo or, you know, just something to, you know, your glasses look nice or, or something nice so people can feel a little bit uplifted uh, because it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world and people, I, I find it, especially for attorneys, they have a hard time giving, uh, they have a very easy time giving instructive advice, but when it's something that needs uplifting or something that requires you to show a little emotion, attorneys are a little hesitant to do that. Um, so I think having community and a, a group of people where, you know, you can 
say, can you look at this for me and let me know if, I, if it's coming off weird or if my writing is off or if I'm using the wrong tense, something to that effect. Um, and I think that goes a long way and is, is very supportive. So we only have a few more minutes and I, I wanna make sure we get this question in um, for those of us who are in the audience that look like us. I think this is always a crucial question um, to have answered on panels like this. How do we maintain our mental health and well-being, especially with labels such as strong black woman and black girl magic? And how can our allies assist, if at all, well-being and wellness spaces don't necessarily always speak to us, nor do we seek these spaces out. So how do we maintain our mental health and well-being? How do we fit in these well-being and wellness spaces? What do you all do? Well, I, I personally think in the Black community alone that mental health, if you mention the word mental health, it's, you know, taboo. It's like, oh no, we don't, we don't have those problems. My mom just told me to take a nap and I'd be okay. And that's, that's not the remedy anymore. Um, and I think mental health, mental health treatment is very important, especially for the black community, because we hold in so much. We take in so much. We have so many pressures. We have so many faces that we put on throughout the day where we're trying to manage clients. We're trying to manage managing partners, we're trying to manage our colleagues, and that can be a lot. And we need spaces where we're able to digest it all. And sometimes digesting it with your friends isn't enough. Sometimes you need someone professional to do that with. And I think as a community, we need to make it okay to say, you know, I have a therapist and I'm okay with that. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Because again, you mentioned therapy and people think, oh, I'm, there's nothing wrong with me. And I think that goes into being a black woman is we carry so much that we don't even wanna carry our own mental health issues. So I think that's important. Uh, I, I recommend uh, people at least try to talk to someone that is you know, unbiased as much as possible. I guess I would I would also add to that again your community of support in addition to a therapist community of support and just simply talking honestly having people you can talk honestly with you know a close friend you can talk honestly with um, whether you know exercise whether it be taking a walk with a friend you know just clearing your head or a spin class or you know doing those kinds of things that you know uh, for me I like spin and that's that's fun. I think those things are really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. The one thing I will say, and I, I guess I'm talking to myself as much as to anybody else when I say this, is that you have to be intentional about it. And I think that as Black women, it's sometimes hard for us to slow down and take the time that we need for ourselves. Um, you know, I, I personally like to like take a walk um, or I, I enjoy cooking and baking. So I'll make time for that. But, but, but if I am not intentional about it, I find myself just keep, I'll keep going and going and going and going and going. So making the time for yourself, you know, setting it aside and being intentional about that. If you even have to schedule it on your calendar, do whatever it takes uh, to, to, to put that aside for yourself, to take care of yourself. 
I'll add to that, um, just onto what Sonia was saying. Um, especially during quarantine, I found that my workday starts a lot earlier, ends a lot later, and it kind of blurs in through the week. I block off time on my calendar. It might be for a nap. It might be in the middle of the day. I don't care. If I have the time, I have a lunch meeting scheduled on Thursday with a girlfriend I haven't seen in months. And that's how I'm maintaining kind of my wellness. Um, I'll find myself working really late, logging on really early. So if it means that I need to take a break in the middle of the day, I just block it off on my calendar. And I'm very protective of that time, whether it's to catch up with friends or to exercise. Thank you. Yep. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I promise you that there would be one question that you would not be prepared for that I would have for you. And so here it is. Sonia, one word to describe yourself as a black woman. Um, loving. Oh, Danielle. Uh, energetic. Mm, Jennifer. Optimistic. Angela. Oh, I was going to say goofy. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> so um, I want to thank everyone for spending this time with us. We weren't able to get through even all our questions, never mind all the questions that came um, from the audience. Um, I do want to uh, close with a few words, uh, first quoting Toni Morrison. True, the black woman did the housework, the drudgery. True, she reared the children, often alone, but she did all of that while occupying a place on the job market, a place her mate could not get, which his pride would not let him accept. And she had nothing to fall back on, not maleness, not whiteness, not ladyhood, not anything. And out of the profound desolation of her reality, she may very well have invented herself. I say to our allies in what I say, abolitionists, folks who try to abolish the racist and sexist practices faced by black women, you have a duty to do better. And I would also say to my sisters, my black women, we have a responsibility to each other as sisters to create spaces of true sisterhood that is a space of gratitude, grace, joy, and love for all of us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Tanisha, do we just hang up? Are we like, what happens now? <laughs> Thank you to our pan panelists and good night. Everyone, we'll see you for part three. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.